Well, good morning. Morning. Morning to those of you who are here. Morning to those of you who are online. We're glad to see you. Thank you for taking part with us. We're not that part of our service where we look and reflect upon a passage uh, from God's Word, the Bible. We've been going through the book of Acts. We have reached the 15th chapter, and you have a long reading in front of you. And so I'm thankful that Ben is here to do the reading for us. Ben, would you read? Today's reading is uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, and then verses 22 through 29. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way uh, by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they, all, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone up from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. Well, that's a long passage. Thanks, Ben. And that is uh, a passage that most people don't preach on. I had uh, never preached on it, never really wanted to preach on it. It seems like kind of a pedantic 
theological debate in the midst of the story of the early church. And then I listened to a sermon by my mentor, Tim Keller, who said, I've never preached on this and I've hardly heard anyone who's preached. It just seems like a boring, pedantic story. Except when you read the commentaries, you find out this is a hinge in the book of Acts and a crossroads for the church of Christ. Because hidden in this story are powerful lessons for why the gospel can stall out in the church and in the culture and how the gospel can succeed. And so we're going to take a quick look, hopefully, at those two things. How the gospel can stall out in a church or how it can struggle in a city and how it can succeed in moving forward. And so we're going to look at those two. And firstly, we're going to look at, from the very beginning, how the gospel can stall out. And you see here in the very first paragraph, people come from Judea. They come from Jerusalem. They come from the Jewish center of where the Christian church started. And they tell Paul and Barnabas, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What we see here are two things that stall out the church in its mission to help the world know the gospel. The first one is doctrinal confusion. And the second one, the one lying underneath that, and probably the real one, is cultural derision. You see, what's here at seems to be the issue is this doctrinal confusion. These Jewish people are saying, you Gentiles need to be circumcised like us Jewish people. This is from the party of the Pharisees. This is a particular group of Jewish Christians who become Christians out of Judaism but want to keep so many of the customs and the rituals and the dress code and the dietary laws that they are accustomed to. You see, what these Jewish Christians are saying is that believing in Jesus is not enough. I need to add something to the simple truth of believing in him. It's not enough that Jesus died for your sins. It's not enough that his innocent death death on your behalf paid the debt of your guilt. That's not enough. You need to add something. You need to dress like a Jewish person. You need to eat like a Jewish person. You need to obey the laws of Moses. Circumcision, when they say that, means an entrance into a whole system of living and understanding spirituality and understanding your relationship with God, and measuring your spiritual maturity. They were adding to the gospel of Jesus. You weren't really a Christian completely until you did these things. It's Jesus plus something else. Now, where did they get this idea? They claimed that they got it from the apostle James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which was the leading church in the Christian faith at the time. James will say in later on, verse 24, they had no authorization to do that or to claim to be from me. So where did they really get the idea? Well, if you've read the letters Paul wrote, Paul himself, a converted Jewish person, actually a Pharisee, whose job was to imprison Christians, he said when he was Jewish, he was filled with pride. He was filled with competitive pride. He was proud of his accomplishments. 
He was ambitious in moving ahead. He said, I was advancing beyond many of my peers in knowledge, in righteousness. You see, he could measure his spiritual state by the metrics that Judaism gave him. And he could tell when he was getting ahead of others, he could distinguish himself from others, and mostly they as Jewish people could distinguish themselves from the Gentiles who knew nothing of this, observed nothing of this. At the root of it was pride. Pride leading to cultural derision. In their pride, they thought themselves better than those who weren't Jewish. Because to be Jewish was to be part of God's special people, to be the ones who got his special promises. Every Jewish child was raised to believe it. God had visited the Jewish people. He'd given the Jewish people freedom from slavery to Egypt. He'd given them a land. He'd given them laws. He'd given them a temple. He'd given them his presence in that temple. And so for you to be a Jew back then was to be part of God's people. And he promised a Messiah would come to the Jewish people that would be a Messiah for them and through them for the world. And Jesus came and he was the Messiah that was promised. And these Jewish Christians had believed in them. He had fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. They were God's special people who found God's special Messiah. And now the church that had been founded was being overrun by people who didn't look like them, smell like them, dress like them, eat like them, drink like them. All these other people are taking control of this movement that was meant for God's special people. How would you feel? You would probably feel like them, the way every dominant group of people in power with a sense of cultural and moral superiority feel when their power slips away. Your pride, your desire for control motivate you to find a reason to oppose the movement. I submit to you the doctrinal confusion was the stated reason, the cultural derision and pride at the root of their hearts was probably the real reason. And that's just like us. That's just like the church throughout the centuries. Why does the church stall? Because of pride. Pride is competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. C.S. Lewis, former professor of literature at Cambridge and Oxford, put it well. Pride, he said, is competitive by its very nature. That's why it goes on and on. If I'm a proud man, then as long as there's another person in the whole world more powerful or more clever than I, that person is my rival and my enemy. So many times, men and women, in church history, pride has led to derision and derision has led to division. This is the pattern. No church filled with a sense of pride, a sense of superiority, or derision is a church that will fruitfully advance the gospel of Jesus. Let us beware of pride that grows in our hearts. And then let us beware of adding to the gospel. How many churches have added to the simple gospel of what Jesus has done for us and simple faith in that something more? You need to add to it to really be a Christian. You need to do X. You need to do Y. Some mentality, some activity, some behavior gets added. Throughout history, churches have done this. We know the story of the Reformation, for example. 
was when the Roman Catholic Church had begun to add to simple faith in Jesus and what he'd done other conditions upon people that they said were necessary for them to be saved. Do works of condign merit, practice the Roman Catholic sacraments, say confession to the priest regularly, make sure you have last rites. You want to get out of purgatory faster, pay some money, do X, do Y, do Z. But that's not just them, it's the church throughout history. We've been talking a little bit in pastoral circles about how some churches think this is the response to COVID. Remember the divisions in COVID. We've got the answer. You guys are cowards. We've got the answer. You guys are overly belligerent. Who has the answer? Why do we as humans seem inclined to add to the gospel? Because when you add something to the gospel, particularly something that you can measure, you get a measurable spiritual state where you can measure yourself and measure yourself against others. What does that sound like? Pride. Why does the church stall? Pride. Leading to cultural derision, leading to doctrinal confusion of adding to the gospel. Implications. Men and women, when you see a church adding something to the gospel, be on guard. If we do that to you, call us out. If you do that to us, we will call you out. And ask the deeper question, why do I want to add something to the gospel? Why do I want these measurable metrics to see how mature I am? Is it not pride worming its way in to the deepest recesses of your heart and your mind? How does the church stall? Pride. Pride manifesting itself in cultural derision and division. Pride manifesting itself in doctrinal confusion by adding stuff to the gospel. They are both manifestations of the same root. Now, how do we succeed then if that's our inclination? Look how the church responds here. The church responds in a variety of ways, and they too have, I think, a single root. The first way that's obvious here is they take the gospel truth seriously. There's confusion over the gospel. There's a fight. So there's no small dissension, it says, between Barnabas and, and Paul and these this people who believe you need to add. So the church sends them to Jerusalem to talk to James. They claim to be coming from James the apostle. So you're going to go, and we're going to have a meeting, and they call a conference, the Jerusalem Council. Why? because they took the truth of the gospel seriously. Gospel truth was so serious, they stopped all the progress they were making, and Paul and Barnabas were having fantastic progress. They were having fruitful ministry. They were seeing all kinds of people become Christians who were not Jewish. They just were becoming Christians. In matter of fact, in their journey to Jerusalem, they stopped in Phoenicia and Samaria all along the way, and they told these wonderful stories of all these people that were becoming Christians, and there was joy all over the place. Men and women, doctrine was not some dusty, boring, pedantic thing to them. It was everything to them. It was life itself. It was worth taking seriously. It was worth getting right. If you know the story of Paul, as he tells it in the letter of Galatians, he'd already 
faced this. The letter of Galatians we think was written before this event, or he would have referred to this event in that letter. He had faced this exact argument before, and what did he do? He says, I went up to Jerusalem, and I submitted my gospel to the leaders there, Peter and James, because I wanted to make sure I had the right gospel. Now, I want to take a moment. Just take a moment now and reflect on this issue of truth in our culture. This sidebar is for those of us who think Christians don't think hmm, and don't take truth very seriously. And what I want to say is, historically and hopefully right now, that's not the truth. It's a caricature. Christians who understand their faith take their truth very seriously and always have. What did Paul say? He said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith is futile. Everything we've taught you is fake, false, wrong, and you're still in your sins. The very thing that we claim to be helping you with is of no help at all. Paul said, if it's not factual, it's not true. Christianity is not based on people just taking a myth and running with it. This quest for truth here, Paul leaving his ministry and going to Jerusalem to make sure he has the truth and to ensure others have the truth is consistent with the ethos of Christianity, which is we will find the truth and then we will tell the truth. But we are captive to the truth. And if you're here and you are a Christian, I have a question for you. How seriously do you take the truth of the gospel? Do you study it? Do you immerse yourself in it? Do you let it seep into you and change you? This is the call of Christianity to do that. Knowing the truth about the gospel, the deep truths about Jesus and what it means should be our goal, should be our aspiration, should be our, one of our bucket lists. I know you have bucket lists. I've heard where you want to go. I've heard where you want to see. I've got them too. Still waiting for the Grand Canyon and others, but this should be one of the deepest of your bucket lists. Now, I will admit there's a particular intensity to this particular doctrinal debate that doesn't exist for every single one, and that's also instructive. Because for the early church, they didn't get excited about every little disagreement, but they convened a council on this one. Why? They didn't just take truth seriously. They took the liberty of the gospel seriously, fiercely, seriously. Here, what you see in this next passage, you hear Peter standing up and saying, Brothers, we know that in the early days God made a choice among you what by my mouth the Gentiles, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows our hearts, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's it. Now, therefore, as he looks the circumcision party, these Jewish pharisaical types in the eye, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter recounts his experience. He tells the story of how God appeared to him and how he went to Cornelius and Cornelius became a Christian and the Holy Spirit showed up and showed deep evidence that he was being poured out to them just like he was to the Jewish people. So Peter knew the two factors were essential, faith in Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And both of those were there in the story of Cornelius, and he recounts that. These are my two essential pieces of evidence. But then that telling last remark, why are you placing a yoke on the neck that neither we nor our forefathers could bear? Here it is, men and women. This is the center of the issue. The Jewish party of circumcision was adding a burden, a yoke, onto people that they could not bear. What was that burden? It was the yoke of trying to please God by our own efforts so we could deserve his pleasure. The works of the law, they wanted to take credit for obeying. But the works of the law are God's law, and God is perfect. And a perfect God can only have one standard of obedience, a standard that reflects him, perfection. If you try and please God by your own efforts, you will face a law of perfect, holy, always obedience, and it will grind you down, and it will lead you to despair because you cannot live that. We are all sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, said Paul in Romans 3. Men and women, the law is a yoke too heavy for you and for me. We just aren't good enough. And the gospel takes that burden away because it introduces someone who was good enough and who did obey it perfectly on our behalf. That's the difference between Christianity and every other system of living and every other religion I have ever heard and I bet you have ever heard about either. Every religion, every system I know says follow these guiding principles and you will flourish. Follow this advice and you will do well with God or with the universe or whatever. Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, they all give good moral advice. They give a moral pathway to follow, a moral ladder to ascend, moral metrics to measure. Christianity, on the other hand, is not good news. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's the declaration of an event. God has come to do what we could not do, to obey God by obeying the law. As a father loves a child, God the Father loved us as his children, so he sent his son to his children, and this child of God, this son of God, became a man, and then this man became a savior because he did not stay alive. He lived the perfect life, and then he gave up that life as a substitute for you and me. He went to a cross and took the guilt of your sin and mine, the moral filth of your heart and mine, the evil and alienation of your deeds and mine, and he paid the price for you 
and for me. He did that. He substituted himself. He paid the price to take away the burden of guilt of you and me, the burden imposed by the law of Moses, the burden of being perfect that we cannot bear. That is the only standard God can give. It is the only standard he did give, but he gave us an out by letting his son live up to that standard. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. We might have credited to us that perfection. So Jesus came and lived perfect and died perfect. But as he died, he took sin and guilt upon himself. He bore it like a scapegoat. He bore it like a falsely accused man. He was convicted like a falsely convicted man. He was sentenced like a falsely sentenced man. He was crucified as a falsely crucified man. He was the truly divine solution for you and for me. For God, not some man, but God himself, God himself paid with his infinite worth, the infinite price of your sin. For God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And in that dying, he took the burden away. We don't have to please God. We don't have to achieve anything. We don't achieve, we receive his grace. Grace undeserved, grace unlimited, grace unconditional that will pardon any sin, that pardons all sin, that pardons every evil that wipes away all guilt, that takes away all shame. That is the gift of the gospel in Jesus, and that is for you. Grace that frees, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation, none. None, not any, none set free free indeed by he who died for you. Men and women, some of us have student loans. Some of us have mortgages on condos and houses. And those mortgage rates have risen terribly in the last couple of years. And as that has happened, my social media has been filled with advertisements of people who offer me wise advice on how to deal with my rising debt and mortgage payments. They're all over my social media. How to pay down your mortgage faster and cheaper. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather click on one of those? and find some good advice on how to pay your mortgage better? Or would you rather answer a knock on the door and open it and have someone say, I can't tell you who, but someone else paid your mortgage for you? Someone else paid your spiritual debt for you. His name is Jesus knocking on the door. Will you open it and receive? The gospel takes the way the burden of your past shame and guilt. The gospel, this is from Tim Keller, I love these three. The gospel takes away the burden of your present need to prove yourself. The gospel takes away the burden of your future anxiety over your destiny, your comfort, where you're going to go. It takes all of them away. 
men and women. We need to guard fiercely the freedom of the gospel. Paul said to the church at Galatia, you're preaching a different gospel. I am astonished, Galatians 1.6, that you are so quickly deserting him, God, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What were they doing? Adding the Jewish customs and laws as part of the true Christian life. He said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel different than the one we preached to you, let them be accursed. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to face the freedom and the uniqueness of the gospel clearly. You have a spiritual debt to God. You have a mortgage that is so high you will never be able to pay it off. Someone else needs to pay it off for you. That someone else is God's son, Jesus, who became a human and gave up his life in his death to do that. Christianity isn't like any other religion. It's not good advice. It's amazing news. They contended for truth. They took truth seriously. They guarded gospel liberty fiercely. Finally, they extended gospel unity generously. Now, after they have spoken, Paul and Barnabas, Peter's told his great story of Cornelius, and Paul and Barnabas have shared these great stories of conversions. James gets up. James, the one who seems to be the godfather of this Jewish group, he's the moderator of the meeting, and James speaks. And what does James say? James says, this is not unexpected, everyone. The prophets spoke about it. This is biblical. Their experiences, their story of what God's doing is attested to and aligns with what the Scripture says will happen because the Scriptures prophesied that when the Messiah came, the Gentiles would be included in the people of God, and he quotes Amos. So didn't have room in the bulletin, as you can see, to fill it all out, but James shares that quote from the Old Testament. After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of all mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. See, it's biblical. What did James do? He added to what Paul and Barnabas had said, look at what God's doing through experience. He added to what Peter said, look, look at the true faith that I've seen. Look at the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Let me add a third piece of evidence. Look at what the scriptures predict. Then James makes a solution of how to solve this division, and the solution is the letter. So Paul and Barnabas say this, Peter say this, but James gets to actually dictate the actual solution. Because this is a suggestion. You ready for a suggestion? Now, given that, that they're completely wrong, this party of the circumcision, these Jewish Christians, given that we've repudiated biblically and by experience and watching the Holy Spirit, everything that they've argued for, look at the letter. It's a masterpiece of gospel unity. Look how it frames the context in a way that promotes unity. 
the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria, greetings. Brothers to brothers. We're all in this together. Secondly, since we've heard that some persons doesn't name who did it, boy, we are tempted to name all these people that are wrong, call them out. That's our culture right now. We're going to call them out. We're going to get on social media and name names. No. We've heard that some persons have gone out and troubled you with words. Wait a minute. Paul calls them another gospel. Peter called them out here for adding a yoke that shouldn't be on the gospel. Well, they've troubled you with some words. I mean, listen to the graciousness of that. It's beautiful. Although we gave them no instruction, just want to be clear, they are at fault. It frames the context in a way that allows the opponents to feel valued, even though it clearly says they're wrong. But after framing the context, it settles the issue in a way that promotes unity. It says, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. They're polarizing, but we're calling them beloved. Men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, people whom you Jewish people, you trust them, who themselves will tell you of the same things. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these requirements. Now listen to these requirements. Do they sound like Jewish requirements or freedom requirements? That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Straight out of the Old Testament law. That you abstain from blood. Eating the blood of animals. Straight out of Deuteronomy. That you abstain from what has been strangled. Straight out of the Old Testament Jewish law. And that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, no. Well, it's in the Jewish law, but it's in every part of Christianity. That's the general one. Three of the requirements that they're asking for are straight out of the Jewish law of Moses. What are they doing? They're saying, let's be generous with our Jewish brothers who are still struggling with the fact that the gospel is for everyone. Let's lean in to them a little bit. We're not going to add all the customs, but these three things are probably flashpoints to them. Commentators are all over. They, they, they can't understand why it's three sacrificial Jewish things that are heavily Jewish and then sexual immorality, which is heavily universal. The only way to properly, I think, understand it is it's entirely pragmatic. It's entirely contextual to what was really bothering the people there at the time. It was meant to heal that division. The church would go on to just kind of ignore those first three rules. We think them arcane now kind of the dustbin of history, but then it was a masterpiece of generous unity. What characterized this response? Caring about the truth, caring about gospel liberty, but extending unity generously? What's one thing? Humility. The leaders chose in humility to extend olive branches to the people who were wrong while gently correcting them. The antidote to pride, which stalls the gospel in any church, is humility, which unleashes the love of God in every church. Men and women, let us learn from this council. Let us take the truth and liberty of the gospel seriously. Let us be gracious to those who we disagree with generously 
Answer the pride of division with the humility of grace. Let us pray. Father, I thank you, and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. We need this grace, for it is only grace, grace that is free and unconditional and undeserved, that really fosters humility. And so drive us deep into the truth and the freedom of your grace, that you may grow in us humility, generosity, while fiercely protecting the liberty and the truth of the gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have uh, time for probably one question. I have a feeling, maybe two. Go ahead. uh, You have six questions, but but with that said, I think you actually answered most of them as you went along in your sermon, so great job. The the problem of asking a question too quick, there you go. (laughs) Well, uh, we do have two questions that we're asking the same thing. This one is an application one specifically to Grace Toronto. Uh, which practical areas of pride do you see Grace Toronto struggle with? This isn't meant to be an accusation, uh, but a, a discernment uh, a tool for us to be able to call one another out with grace and love. Can I think about that? That's a great question. Yeah, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, um, pre-COVID, when we were eight or 900, two services, um, it would have been easier to answer. It's a, it, there's a lot of new people here, um, and I don't feel I can exegete this congregation well enough to, to know those issues. I would say, however, having talked to other people who pastor other churches in global city, downtown churches, that a general tendency of global city, downtown churches is a certain pride in their cultural sophistication as residents of global cities with downtown um, sensibilities. We can be snobs, um, generally speaking. Um, You know, I remember one of our worship leaders in the early days of Grace Toronto was like, uptown to me is north of Bloor. I never go north of Bloor. (laughs) That is not uptown. So, so, uh, so what's uh, young and Eglinton? That's the suburbs. Well, there's a certain snobbishness to that kind of attitude. Um, So, yeah, great question. I, I need to think about that, and I need to probably get to know the congregation a little better to answer that. Uh, but there are all kinds of areas of pride that we can have. Um, I know that we were accused of being a little too put together, a little too professional at times. In the early days, when we were at 41 Britain, we were too hipster because it was a hipster space. When we got this space, we weren't hipster anymore. Uh, we were something else. Um, and so I think it changes, but I think we need to always guard for it. Yeah. Great questions. Uh, we're going to do now a song of response, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up while I pray. Father, give us humility from every form of pride. Allow the gospel to shatter our pride and our pretension and to remind us that we don't deserve your grace. And help us to just simmer in your grace, immerse ourselves in your grace, and let it change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.